Welcome to episode 81 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we're proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. With the sky comes falling down for you, there's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What's good? You know, everything is good. Everything is awesome. So, can't complain about anything. Everything is awesome. I know, I was just thinking that. We really should have let in with that as our intro tonight. We should have. What's good with you? I guess everything. I've, now you've raised the bar. Like, I can't <laughs> complain about anything because this is one of those God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. And that's definitely true. So, I'm guessing then you've got some pretty epic things to affirm. I, everything is awesome. I do. So, this is kind of a big picture affirmation. So, I'm affirming <clears throat> the Evangelical Theological Society. So yesterday I was able to participate in the regional meeting of the ETS uh, in the Northeast region, which is basically all of New England, New York, and then kind of the parts of Canada right on the the border. And um, the ETS is an organization that's been part of American evangelicalism almost from the very beginning of American evangelicalism. And Overall, ETS has been a faithful witness um, in the midst of other academic societies shifting towards liberalism. So like the Society of Biblical Literature has shifted towards kind of the typical academic Bart Ehrman style um, critical scholarship. Um, Some of the other theological societies have too. But the ETS has remained a faithful witness in the academic theological world. So I'm just affirming them. And the beauty of the ETS is that at the regional level, Everyone is welcome to the meetings. You don't have to be a member. You don't have to have a degree. You can just go. So I would encourage all of our listeners to go to, um, I think it's etsjets.org. Um, you just look up ETS or Evangelical Theological Society and look up your region and see when the meeting is and just go. It's like $30 for a non-member to go. Um, that includes lunch and you just get to like spend time with other evangelical theologically minded Christians. You get to hear papers read. Um, there's usually a plenary speaker that's kind of on the famous side. So we had Paul Copan this year. I think we're having Tom Schreiner is on the slate for next year. Um, but it's just a good time of fellowship and you get to meet other Christians within your area. And if you have um, a master's degree in a theological discipline, uh, you can be a full member and you can present a paper at your regional conference, which is an opportunity um, that I would really encourage our listeners, if you're theologically minded, to take advantage of. Um, and the ETS is really at least in the Northeast here, we're really trying to position ourselves as a serious academic body um, to sort of be a witness to what in our part of the country is is a very intellectually minded uh, population. So we're trying to position ourselves as like intellectually faithful Christians who also still hold evangelical convictions. So I had a blast. Um, I presented a paper. Everything went great. Um, I got elected to the steering committee for the next three years, which is going to be yeah, fun. steering committee. So, um, so just... Check it out. If you have any questions about it, just email me and I'll help you get connected with the people in your region. But it's a good time. It's just a really good time. I know I even know some undergraduates that are presenting papers in other regions. So um, it's a good opportunity for people and it's not that hard to get a paper in. That sounds legit. Yeah, it is legit. What about you? What are you affirming? This week, I'm affirming with the generosity of brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh, man. So, It's occurred to me this week that there is no generosity on this earth like Christian generosity because the intent and the content are aligned. There's like a lovingness with that. And 
we've kind of been the beneficiaries of that, at least this week. There's been a couple of people who have provided the show with some support, with some funds. And I'm really humbled by that. We don't have a lot of expenses like we talked about before, but we do have them. They exist. And so it's humbling to have people say, to come alongside and help support us in the maintenance costs and all the stuff that we invest. I'm just floored by that. So I want to say thank you for those who have said through Patreon or otherwise that they'd like to be a part of this journey. Because this is kind of like an open-ended exploration of Reformed theology and biblical living and faithfulness. And so our point in starting this has always been to have others come alongside and join in whatever we're doing here. Yeah. So there's just no generosity like biblical Christian generosity. And I love it. Yeah. What an expression of Christ's love. Absolutely. I hear that. Yeah. It's really good stuff. So now that we've got the good stuff out of the way, yeah, <laughs> let's deny some things. So I thought about trying to make this theological, but I'm just, I'm just not, I am denying oh, this is gonna be good. the rhinovirus. So that's just the technical name for the common cold. So I have had this stinking cold for almost two weeks. And my wife has had it for probably two and a half weeks. And at this point, it's just become this nagging cough. Like everything will be fine. And all of a sudden it feels like there's somebody just like stabbing me in the back of the throat. And I, there's nothing I can do to not cough. So like in the middle of my presentation (laughs) yesterday, I had like a 10 minute coughing fit. And in the middle of the night, I'll wake up and have like a 10 minute coughing fit. So the fall is terrible and the results of the fall are terrible. So I'm denying the rhinovirus all day long. That was pretty heavy. I mean, you got the fall in there. Yeah. Well, so that's pretty much the ultimate denial. It's true. It's true. I'm denying sin. I'm denying sin. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's a good thing that we're about to do something where we just talk for like an hour. (laughs) Yeah, it's great. It's (laughs) going to be perfect. Perfect compliment to exactly how you're feeling right now. Yes. Well, actually, so this is a good tie into mine because this week I'm denying against tea and the insane amount of spirituality that is communicated and marketed through tea bags. Oh, I know. Oh, my goodness. Isn't that wild? It's like, ridiculous. I guess in our culture, it makes it seem more legit if you have a tea bag that has some kind of cute saying on it that brings in some kind of weird new age spirituality. So I'm on this kick now and I'm not the first who's done this, but I'm denying against these things like hard, so hard that now I'm just correcting the tea bags <laughs> messages and then posting them on Twitter. I did see that the other day. Or Instagram. It's pretty yeah, awesome. So the, the one I posted said, and this is just like nonsensical, like maybe somebody is like, I need some chai tea, but I'd really like that chai tea to come with some kind of weird new age spiritual message that would make me feel better. That's yeah. going to really help the tea. So the one that I posted was just, I think it said, in the beginning is you, in the middle is you, in the end is you. What does that even mean? I I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) They don't do that with coffee. No, that's the thing, right? Because I guess like tea, chai stuff, like, you know, I'm drinking like herbal teas and stuff like that. I I get it. It has kind of an Eastern uh, generation, if, if not influence, but really, do we need to go there all the time? The answer is no. No, we do not. The the answer is no. And I'm glad that you said it that way because this is the question cast it is. this week. Are you stoked about this? I am very stoked. So stoked that, in fact, I forgot that it was the question cast. And when I figured out that it was, <laughs> I was wicked excited. I love question casts. I love it too. And like we said before, we're not necessarily 
experts on all these things or any one thing in particular, but the idea is to get some other voices involved in this conversation to build this community out. So we're thankful to those people who have either emailed us with some questions or better yet, left a voicemail. You're going to hear some different voices as we go through these things. So should we just get after it? Let's do it. All right. So let's get this first question out of the way. We should just set this right at the outset. We should. At the top. Let's let's get this one done. Let me read an email that we actually received. Here's the email. It goes, Dear Reformed Brotherhood, why aren't you doing something special for Easter? Do you hate the resurrection? Sincerely, the Reformed Brotherhood. <laughs> <laughs> We're like the only two that are going to laugh at this. Yeah, so we actually, I actually did email ourselves just so it could be legitimately on our email cast and not made up. So um, we do not hate the resurrection. We actually love the resurrection. We're huge pro-resurrection we, yeah, people. We are affirming the resurrection. Um, but we celebrate the resurrection every Lord's day. So we don't need to set aside a special once a year Lord's day to celebrate what we're supposed to be celebrating every Lord's day. So we're not going to do a special, uh, Easter podcast or anything like that. Um, so that's just a head off. Like people asking us, why wouldn't we focus on that? Although I have a tough time thinking anyone who's listened to our show would be, confused about why we're not doing something special for Easter, but uh, (laughs) since it's question cast, we figured we would just get it out of the way and take care of it. So while we're on this question, though, one of the things I wanted to bring up with you is this sense that in most of our churches, we do have this sensibility that because Easter is a little bit different in that sometimes it draws partly different crowd, that we kind of have to hype up that particular Sunday and make it really big in some kind of presentation. I mean, how do you feel about that? Have you encountered that before? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of churches that do like big like pageants or they have special skits or whatever, and I I, I can understand the impulse, and I think even on on some level, it's just prudent to recognize you're going to have people in your congregation that you might not other times. So right. so being intentional and pre- preparing your congregation to be intentional, um, saying you know a couple weeks ahead of time, saying don't forget we're going to have. Um, we're probably going to have some guests. We're going to have extra people we don't usually have. So make sure you um, take the far away parking spot so the guests can park closer. Make sure you sit um, towards the front so the guests who come in don't have to feel like they're coming all the way to the front. And those kinds of practical things are fine. I don't think we should uh, go out of our way to like introduce a special skit or like have like hire an extra band or something like you know crazy stuff like that. Um, and I don't think that we should feel compelled to. Uh, focus on the resurrection or or at Christmas time, we talk about the incarnation. I don't think we should feel compelled to um, focus on those in a way we might not other times of year, but we also shouldn't feel like um, we can't. So it's kind of this weird catch 22 that all of the really hardcore, like anti holiday people are stuck on, on Lord's day, Easter Lord's day, because what do you preach the resurrection or not? Well, it's Sunday. So yeah, you preach the resurrection, but it's also Easter. So you can't preach the resurrection. So it's this weird, like catch 22 that they get stuck into. And the answer is like, you preach the gospel and the resurrection every Sunday. That's the answer. Amen. Right. I'm totally with you in that. I think this is tough for people because the fact of the matter is there's no difference between Easter Lord's Day and any Lord's Day in August, right? I mean, they're equal biblically. Right. So a lot of people, a lot of churches like invest like a ton of time and resources into Easter, partly I think because it draws people who aren't normally in the pews, Yeah. but also because there is this sense, well, it's got to be big. Like this is 
this is like the Super Bowl of Lord's Days right. when really it's the Lord's Day. We, in other words, like I'd like for me and for our churches like to continue to think about what if we made that energy something that we could harness all year round, at least our attention, our focus, our resources, not maybe making every service big like that has to come in at different times because we can't right. just go wild all the time. But what, I mean, it would be super sweet to be like, we're going to like pretend Easter also happens in like August or July and, and just as an expression, invest a lot into a particular Sunday. So I get like, again, like you're saying, you got to be cognizant that there are going to be people in front of you that need to hear the gospel for sure. Right. I kind of liked your thing the best about make the regular people park far away. Yeah. Well, we used to do that. <laughs> I mean, that's a legit thing. Yeah. I mean, when I was uh, like, our parking lot is big enough for our whole congregation. We don't have parking problems. But I used to go, as I've mentioned before, I used to go to a big mega church in uh, Minneapolis. And not only would we park far away, a lot of times we would actually park at a different location, like at a, a like a mall down the road. And we would like shuttle regular congregation members in because we knew there was going to be a limitation on parking. And we didn't want people who are not normally part of the church to feel like they weren't welcome. And something as right. small as not being able to find a parking spot. A lot of people who aren't used to going to churches, if they can't find a parking spot, they may just not stop. They may just drive home. So right. some of those things are important to think about on those Sundays, but those are, those are logistic things. They shouldn't affect um, our worship. They shouldn't affect how we structure our service. Um, you know, churches that wanted like do all sorts of extra things during like Easter Sunday service. Um, even something like introducing, this is going to sound strange, but introducing extra um, like scripture readings into your service that you wouldn't right. normally do. No, I know exactly what you're talking it's, about. It's like, so, so is there a reason we feel like we have to read more scripture on this Sunday than others? Right. Um, you know, there might be good reasons. There might be, there. there's nothing wrong with introducing extra, you know, scripture reading. There's no divinely ordained order of service or anything like that. But if we feel like we have to treat Easter Sunday the first Sunday after the first full moon of the first Monday of spring or whatever the formulation is, if we have to treat that radically different for some reason, then I think we're missing the whole point of the Lord's day is that we have a seven day liturgical calendar and our high holy day comes every single week. Right. And that we miss that a lot of times as um, sort of modern evangelical Christians. That is the absolute heart of the issue. Mm -hmm. It's understanding, I think, the intent of why we would do something on an Easter Sunday that we might not normally do. Right. And by normally, I don't mean you might do it every week, but it, with some kind of regular rotation. Right. I think that is a really good point. And it's one that I think we need to like continue to ask ourselves, like, why do we do these things on the Lord's Day? To whom are we appealing? And are we doing them out of some kind of presumed cultural significance that we have to? Yeah. Or because this is part of our actual liturgical process that's it's genuine worship which yeah. it's i'm not saying that it's not it's just i agree with you like it's almost like there's an unspoken rule that on some churches or maybe most churches like we will do certain things on easter we'll go a little above and beyond and we just kind of are like yeah because it's like in the same way like people this this always floors me too and then we'll get to the next question because this is just out of control now but people love to dress up to church yeah. on Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. Yeah. And that's just straight tradition. Mm -hmm. And I guess there's nothing wrong with it per se, but it always strikes me as odd. Yeah. I wore jeans to church today. <laughs> so I, I, don't I know. didn't, but I would have if I wasn't uh, playing guitar. But yeah. I'm, I'm down with that. But when I see is like, and I'm not just, I'm not picking on my 
particular church. I'm thinking over like the large breadth and depth of different churches I've been a part of. It's just so funny when like the dude that's like really chill or casual. Yeah, he comes wearing on, like a three-piece suit. Yeah, ex- exactly. And it's just, it's just a carryover. I yeah. guess I'm at the point in my life where I'm trying to ask the hard question of what things are carryover from tradition and what things are true expressions of actual worship. What things are elements, what things are not important. I think that's probably going to come back. Yeah. One, another question. One last thought before we move on to the next question is, the churches that throw these big like Easter extravaganzas, they also don't realize that like, so let's say you get that 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 random family that shows up on Easter Sunday, right? Right. Like they, yeah. Oh, I know where you're going with this. They're new to the area. They don't have a church. Maybe they're not Christians, but they have some idea. Or maybe like you invite your friend from work. You say, hey, it's Easter Sunday. We've got this choir. We're doing this. You know, the, the pastor is going to parachute out of the ceiling. It's going to be amazing. They come on Easter Sunday and they're like, this is the awesomest thing ever. And then they come on the, the Sunday after Easter Sunday and it's like everything is normal. And it's right. like they, they come and they're like, well, I feel like it's kind of like um, it's kind of like if you go on a first date and like you dress up and you're all you're on your game and like everything's great. You, you know, you got a haircut and then you show up to your second date and like your hair's all disheveled and like you, you're wearing like a stained T-shirt like. It, it's not going to yeah, go so well. There's no need to impress anymore, right? It's exactly. What you're saying. But it, the, you're not going to get to a third date is the point. It's like if you show right. up on your first date and you're putting on a front and you show up to your second date and you're all of a sudden this like this schlubby dude, then you show up on your third date and she's not going to be there. And it's, it's kind of the same thing with churches is like you put on this, this fake appearance of who your church is and what you're about on Easter Sunday or Christmas Eve or whatever it is, Good Friday, whatever special event you're doing. And then all of a sudden they may come back a second time and it's like, oh, this is kind of a letdown. And that's why like the ordinary means of grace have to be what appeal to people. If they come to your church and they're captivated by the preaching of the word and probably not the first Sunday they're there partaking in the sacrament, because usually you don't want someone who's new to your church, who's just visiting, you have no context for to join you in that, especially if they're not Christians. Um, If those things captivate them, they're going to keep coming back. And the only way those things will captivate them is if the Holy Spirit opens their hearts for them to be captivated by those things. Exactly. Preaching is folly and weakness to the world. And so if someone is captivated by folly and weakness, you know that the Holy Spirit is, has changed their heart to be captivated by that. So basically, we've got the same advice that we give to somebody going on a blind date. Yeah. Be Churches, yourself. be yourself. Exactly. <laughs> I liked how you knew exactly, exactly. where I was Exactly. Be yourself. That. And to your point, this, I think, is about the value of worship and gathered worship, especially on the Lord's Day. It's a means of grace, an ordinary means of grace, but that doesn't mean that it's not extraordinary in terms of its application in our lives. So there's something to be said for faithful preaching, faithful worship through music, and that can be enough because it is enough. Yep. So if, if we have that pattern where we're doing those things genuinely and thoughtfully with whatever liturgy we use... I can't imagine that that's exactly the kind of thing that God is going to use on any given Lord's Day, Easter or not, exactly. to bring people into a proper knowledge of the resurrection. Yeah. Exactly. Let's get to some real emails. Boom. Now. Yeah. Okay. So here's a real question. This is also an email from somebody named Leonard. Do you know anybody named Leonard? Uh, I don't think I do. I don't either. It's a sweet name, though. It is a sweet name. It makes me think yeah. of Big Bang Theory. That's where I went to, but I, I presume this isn't that dude, obviously, but yeah. well, so that dude's not his, real. Well, I know he's an actor, <laughs> but I was, <laughs> wait, that show is fake. Um, 
It's this not a reality. It's learning. not reality television. All kinds of things I'm learning tonight. So let me read just a snippet from his email, and it's a really great question, so I'm going to quote him. I'm aware you both are avid readers, and I was wondering some advice for a fairly new Christian like myself who does the 90-day reading plan and doesn't really know where to go from there. I understand what being in God's Word daily looks like, but would you recommend study, devotions, or just keep on reading and meditating on a book of choosing? So I'll let you go first, handle that, and I'll swing back around yeah. after you're done. Yeah. So so this reminds me of the the best answer that you can give someone if they ask you, what Bible translation should I use? The answer is whichever Bible translation you'll read. So sometimes people think like, oh, you got to read the NASB because it's the most accurate. And the answer is like, well, okay, if they're not going to read the NASB, like the NIV is not ideal, but if they're going to read the NIV, then you should tell them to read the Bible they're going to read. And as far as reading plans go or what you're reading every day in in the scriptures, the important part is to be reading the scriptures. So if that means that you wake up and you get the daily bread in your email every morning and you read the three or four passages or the three or four verses that they give you at the end of your little devotional, then that's fine. That's if you're going to read the word, it's better to be in the word than not in the word. The worst thing you can do is to set up like this extensive reading plan and then never follow it. And that's what I did for a number of years is I would set up the yearly reading plan and I would have these really ambitious ideas that I was going to get through the whole Bible in six months. And I was going to do this and that and the other thing. And then all of a sudden it's February and I'm, I'm 30 days behind and I just cancel it. And, and then I don't do anything for the rest of the year. So set yourself up for success. Try to try to bite off small chunks that you can chew. As far as other devotions and things, um, the daily word is not anything hard hitting. It's very fluffy, but it's not bad. I mean, it's usually pretty good insight. Um, there's a couple audio devotionals that I've been listening to. John Piper does one. Um, uh, what's it called? Something about joy, which is it's John Piper. So of course it's something about joy. Um, but it, it's, it's devotions that are read by John Piper. He writes them every day and it, it's always focused around a particular verse. It's very good. He has sort of, it's sort of like a dramatic reading too, which is a little strange for John Piper. Um, Pray the word by David Platt. He reads a verse or a passage and then sort of guides their listener into what kinds of things to pray for. And then he actually prays. So listening to those things is good. You can also, um, if you look in your podcast directory, just type ESV. The ESV has published several different kinds of daily devotional, uh, daily Bible reading plans in audio format. So you could listen to the the um, chronological Bible reading plan, and they'll just push it to your um, podcast app every day. And that's a good way to be digesting the word as well. Um, As far as like other books that you're reading, um, you know, you you have to read what you have to read. If if it's something that you are going to get distracted by from God's word or discouraged because you can't keep up with it or you can't understand it, start small. Start with the things, you know, Leonard says he's a fairly new Christian. It's probably not a great idea to like order Bob Inc.'s you know, reform dogmatics when you're a new Christian and just try to jump into it. It's not going to work. Start off with something like Pilgrim Theology or Core Christianity. Um, this is going to shock a lot of people, maybe even Wayne Grudem, um, as long Ooh. as you kind of understand where some of the issues are and can kind of scandalous can kind of avoid some of those. Um, again, like a systematic theology is only good if, if you actually are going to read it and take time to digest it. Right. That's right on. So here's what I would add to that too, in terms of things that have been helpful to me in reading the scriptures by way of approach. It's been helpful for me to remember that when we read the Bible, it's because it is 
the best God-given window through which we get a clear view of Jesus. And Jesus, of course, is God's ultimate disclosure. Yeah. So even though we sometimes kind of throw around that Christ followers are people of the book, I mean, that's actually what the Quran calls Christians. Yeah. We're actually people of the person. Right. So we don't follow the Bible just by itself. We read the Bible so that we can follow Jesus. So when we approach the Bible the way the Bible tells us to do so, with Jesus at the center, he becomes this ultimate context yeah. for every other truth that we learn in those pages. So I bring that up only to say, it's been so helpful to me as I'm reading through the scriptures to ask, where is Jesus in this? Where do I see God's character? Yeah. How can I give him glory? So in terms of making it cohesive, I would recommend to Leonard as well, based on what you said, that it's so helpful to get into some kind of reading that gives you the grand arc of the Bible. Yeah. And one of the things that's been great for me is the five-day Bible reading plan. Have you heard of that one? Yeah. Isn't that one where you basically, it builds in some buffer time in case you miss a day? Yes, exactly. So it's great. So you're reading five days of the week. There's assigned reading and it goes mostly chronologically and it, it puts in some Psalms in kind of like these appropriate places. So it, it gives you like this nice view of the entire scriptures while at the same time, not making you too distracted by having a reading plan that you only read like one particular genre a week, which can be yeah. fine. But I think to get into, like, it's important to get the full story here, the full breadth and scope of what the counsel of God is saying. And that's best when I think you approach it in that kind of, like, way. So I would encourage that. And then in terms of, like, other reading, and I'm sure you'd be the same way, Tony, I kind of always have a book that I consider to be kind of, quote unquote, devotional in nature that's hanging around that I read when I have a couple of spare moments or more. Yeah. And the great thing about the five-day reading plan is if you're on point for that week, you have two extra days where it's not like you just chill and take off, but you can grab a hold of some other good reading and make that part of your devotional time. So one of the great examples that I would recommend that I'm looking at right now is The Gospel-Shaped Life by Ian Hamilton. Yeah. Really short little chapters. There's 42 of those bad boys. They're amazing. They're thought-provoking. Uh, always have like a book on standby. You and I read like a lot of stuff. Yeah. We read like a, lo- a lot of like varied stuff. So like right now I'm reading a book on the London Interbank offering rate scandal. So I've got like that going on and I've always got some kind of theological book yeah. that helps feed me in addition to the Bible or better said, kind of pushes me back into the scripture. So I like what you said about when you pick out a book like that, Pick something that you want to read. Like, don't let any Christian tell you, this is what you should read. This is what all good reformed people read this. Because if you're not interested in it, when you get to a part that's above your head, and there should always be those parts like we talked about before, you're going to drop out of it because it's not going to be of interest. So I would recommend just go to banneroftruth.org, search for Puritan paperbacks. And the great thing is you're going to find all this wonderful material that's down to earth written in kind of a very understandable way. But the great thing about most of Puritan titles is they tell you exactly what the subject is. (laughs) So you can go and search for something that you're interested in. So whether it's like Mortification of Sin by John Owen or Thoughts for Young Men by J.C. Ryle, guess what that's about? It's about thinking for young men. Sinful Speech by John Flavel, like Flowers from a Puritan's Garden, that's meditations across all kinds of different things. I just think that's a wonderful resource that a lot of people are, are sometimes not aware of. It's a great way. Have that book on the side, keep it on your desk or on your nightstand. And whenever you can set aside a couple minutes of, even if it's just a couple minutes of focused time where you, you set your phone away so you're not distracted by notifications, Yeah. you pick up the book and you give it like your best 15 minutes that you can. 
And I think that's going to expose you to lots of theology, which will push you back into the scriptures and the scriptures will reinforce hopefully what you're reading by way of testing. So there's this great like symbiotic nature between, I think, having something on the side and always being rooted in the scriptures. I I don't know if that, is that how you read or do you read slightly different than that? Yeah. I mean, I, um, I'm kind of revamping how I read. So I used to do the thing where I would, I would try to have Basically, I'd be reading a different book every day because I kind of get bored reading the same book every day. And for me, that just didn't work. Um, For some people, that works great to have like six or seven books that you rotate and you read in a different book every day. But I, what I found is I was just never finishing books that way. And books are expensive, so if I buy a book, I need to, I need to finish it. It's just good stewardship. Um, But one of the other things I would say before I, I continue that thought is, you know, we have a lot of listeners that come to us um, through the Reform Pub. And one of the things that happens in the Reform Pub is there are some theological heavyweights. Um, there are people who are really well read, really well studied. There are people that, for some reason, just have it seems like they have an enormous amount of time to read. Try really hard not to fall into the trap of comparing yourself to other people. Too. Yeah, for sure. Because it can you can you can jump into a situation like that, and all of a sudden you're seeing like this guy's guys talking about like, yeah, well, I, I just finished Bobbing's Dogmatics and now I'm halfway through Voss and, you know, I just finished the second volume of Turretin and I'm on my third pass through the institutes and all of a sudden you're going, well, man, what am I, I just read uh, half a page out of the value of vision and I, that can't even do anymore at this point. Um, don't compare yourself to other people. It might be good to sort of like approach those people and say like, hey, I really want to become a, just just like Leonard's doing. I, I see that you're an avid reader. I want to become a better reader. I don't even know what is out there to read. Can you make some suggestions? Right. But everybody has a different schedule. Everybody has a different time. Um, everybody has a different reading ability. Learning how to read is a skill. It takes practice to be able to sit down. If you're not a reader and you sit down and you try to read a difficult book for an hour, you're going to make it about five minutes before you have to stop. So it's right. it's a skill you have to practice. Um, the way that I read is I have uh, a couple books that I'm intending to finish and I set a deadline. So I use an app on my iPad called Leo, L-E-I-O. Um, and what it does is I can set an end date and it will tell me how much I need to read every day to accomplish that. So I set the end date and then I just set aside my lunch break at work. I get an hour long lunch break at work. So it takes me 10 minutes to walk up to where I get my lunch. I get my lunch. I sit down while I'm eating. I usually read uh, one of my Bible reading plans that I'm working through. So I have a couple different Bible reading plans that I'm working through. I read that. And then when I'm done eating lunch and I finish my Bible reading plan, I devote the rest of my lunch break to, um, to reading. I'm also the kind of person that needs to have a downtime. I have to have a day off. So one of my days a week, I watch a TV show during lunch. So there's no right way to read. There's no right right Christian prescribed method for this. But right. kind of like we're saying, just find the plan that works for you. Someone else's plan is no good for you if it means you're not going to actually read. Um, exactly. Exactly. And you have to learn to kind of like push away the distractions. And for me... That's structuring my time. So I give myself space for the distractions once or twice a week. So that way, when I'm actually sitting down to read and I'm focused, instead of thinking, oh, man, I really have this other this TV show I want to watch. I can say, well, I've got time set aside for that tomorrow. So today I'm going to focus on reading. Tomorrow I'm going to watch a TV show. And then at the day after that, I'm going to read again. Yeah, right on. I like that. That's been crazy liberating for me 
to realize that good reading is not about quantity. Right. Like an hour of distracted reading is no way better than 15 minutes of focus. So that's what I would say, no matter what season of life you're in, try to just set aside a little bit of time where you can, as best you can, be completely undistracted. And I think God really honors that kind of focus. I mean, that's part of giving over our first fruits of our minds and our energy and our concentration onto the study of his word. So whether that's in the morning or the evening, it's just a matter of getting in the habit and finding some good stuff that you want to read. And I think Banner of Truth is a great place to start. And it will give you easy exposure to topics that might interest you. And anything on that website is going to really challenge your faith. Yeah. So I think that's a great way to read in this kind of double-barreled manner where we've got the scripture and we've got some good books on the side. And none of those two things are stressing us out. And what I mean by that is like what you said, if you it, the plan of reading is no good if it becomes a legalistic mechanism in which you feel to which you feel enslaved. Yeah. So Part of it is always having the mindset of, I do this because I want to know Jesus better. And this is literally the biography, the one that actually Jesus read himself to learn through obedience what it meant in some ways to be the Savior. And so we should come and read that way. So uh, look up Gospel Shaped Life by Ian Hamilton, or I think we maybe were both recommended in a similar vein, Knowing Christ. Yeah, yeah by, that's a by great Mark one. Jones. Those are nice short chapters. But there's, man, there's some great meat. And again, it will just wonderfully complement in your love for the scriptures. Yeah. So God, that's what I would recommend. God Is by Mark Jones is also very similar. Short chapters, yes, that is very devotional. Really good. Um, Pilgrim Theology has long chapters, but they're broken up into good sections. Um, Core Christianity has got short short chapters. And, and that's, that's, you know, we can move on after this, but that's the other thing is like you have to learn. You can't dive into the deep end right off the bat. You have to start in ways that you can approach. So sitting down with a difficult book that's got 50-page chapters and trying to work all the way through a chapter is just not going to work. Maybe you realize you're the kind of person that needs to read a complete section. It drives me crazy if I sit down to read and I have to stop halfway through whatever the the division is. So for me, like I I have to pick books sometimes where I'm going to be able to make it through an entire subsection before I stop. Um, some people don't care, but for me that doesn't work. So I have to structure. You have to structure your time and your reading goals in a way that works for you. Clearly, we love books and reading because we've just spent an inordinate <laughs> amount of time <laughs> talking about technique and reading. But it's important. It's so let's go to the next question. And this, we're going to the voicemail box. All right, let's do it. Hey, fellas. Good morning. It's Devin Hackler. Hey, man. Uh, listening playing some catch up listening to your uh 2cb episode and um i'm still trying to consider how if we take that in its most literal sense how um a cross is not a violation um so anyway i I know calvin makes distinctions in his institute and i know we do not strictly you know say we're worshiping the cross but nonetheless if, if we take that Second commandment. I'm I'm kind of wondering how a cross is not considered to be a violation because it's literally a carved image. So anyway, just looking for your thoughts on that. Thanks, guys. God bless. So this is a really good question from Devin, and it's one that I'm surprised we didn't come to a little bit sooner. And so we probably should talk a little bit about why we think the cross is or is not a second commandment violation as an extension of some of the conversations we've had before. So I'll let you get after that first. Yeah. 
So we have to draw the distinction between something that's intrinsically a second commandment violation um, and something that could be a second commandment violation. So a cross definitely could be a second commandment violation. And, For sure. And the way that that would happen would be, you know, when I was in college, I remember we, we did these um, Sunday night, every Sunday night we had Vespers, which was just a, it was just a worship. It was all it was, was worship music. There wasn't a message or anything. It was just worship music. And they frequently would put this cross up down on, kind of on the floor. And I remember there were lots of times that um, I would get really fixated on that. Or if it was, if I was able to, I would go down and I would actually like lay prostrate on the floor in front of this. So much so that at times, if they didn't bring the cross out, it was like distracting to me and I wasn't able to worship. And Mm. I didn't think about it at the time, but I was making that cross an instrument of worship so much that I couldn't worship if it wasn't there. Um, So when you get to that kind of level where, where you have to have it present or you're, you're using it as a means to worship, that's when it becomes a second commandment violation. Um, things that might be intrinsically second uh, second commandment violations would be any sort of image um, that is of a person of the Godhead. Um, right. If it's if it's an, uh, purporting to be an image of God, the Father, or a picture of Jesus, so that would include a crucifix that has the Christ on it. Um, those things in the classical reform view, which I hold, and Jesse seems to be warming up to over time. Um, are intrinsically meaning they could never not be second commandment violations, regardless of how you're using them. A picture of Jesus is always, always a second commandment violation, no matter how it's being used. Um, So there's this, I don't want to call it gray, but there's, there's an area of things. Anything could become a second commandment violation if you're worshiping it, or if you're using it in the process of worshiping then it has become, visually using it in the process of worshiping, then it has become a second commandment violation for you. Yes, agreed. I mean, we're kind of differentiating between elements of worship versus objects of worship. And I would agree, it would seem that a cross could be be used as an idol, could come from that place. I think that that's hopefully more often not the case. And the Bible isn't necessarily, of course, against symbolism. So we have the, the original temple and the tabernacle had objects inside of it. None of those were elements to be worshipped, and they all had some kind of symbolism. We have to be careful, though, because I'm not saying that the cross is a prescribed means that needs to be present in our churches. I can understand that if we think about the first century church, this is what's wild. I mean, the cross was offensive. Yeah, Like seeing the cross, because it represented this cruel form of punishment and death, it was totally offensive, which we've just completely stripped all that away because it's now commonplace to us. So we've we've just washed the cross of all Christ's blood, and now it's kind of this very sterile symbol. And I think for the most part, it doesn't become distracting. But your your story there is really interesting to me, and it strikes me that it's clear that crosses or elements that symbolize something have a biblical precedent for being a problem for people. Right. And what comes to my mind initially is Moses and the bronze serpent. Oh man, right? we are so much on the same page. <laughs> It's like we're brothers. <laughs> it is like we're brothers. So that's like just a classic example of here is something that even Christ references, like in John 3, I think. And then by the time we get to King Hezekiah, if I remember correctly, yep. he's got to lay the smack down and destroy this thing. 
because people were making offerings to it. So we, we get some sense there about where the line is for inappropriate behavior. And right. so I would say anything which is taking the resources that in our worship rightfully belong to Christ and his person and God, the Father and the Holy Spirit, then that thing has even ceased to become a distraction, has become a fallout blown yeah. idol, which leads us back somewhere at least into a second commandment violation. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that comes to mind is um, I remember having a conversation on uh, Facebook probably a year ago, and um, the context of the conversation isn't terribly important. It's probably the only time I'm ever going to say that. But the the content of the conversation was somebody was throwing an absolute fit because um, the somebody had put the Christian flag. Have you ever seen that, Jesse? Yes, I have. Seen so that. the Christian flag is in it in, on its face is just a ridiculous thing to me. But they had taken Agreed. the Christian flag and they had put it up on the flagpole, and the person was throwing a fit because the Christian flag was below the American flag on the flagpole. And what I said to them is, "You are totally missing the point that you've already made the Christian flag an idol." If you think that it deserves some sort of precedence over something else. Right. So the the Christian flag is not a prescribed biblical symbol. It doesn't represent anything. I, I don't there's nothing inherently wrong with the idea of having some sort of thing that we've created that represents us, that we might have like a badge that we wear or a particular thing that identifies us. But people sometimes take that, like the idea like People freak out about a, an American flag in the sanctuary. Oh, my goodness, there's an American flag in the sanctuary. They don't freak out about the fact that there's a Christian flag that we've identified and created that's right next to it on the other side of the altar. Well, that's just as much a potential idol as the American flag. At the end of the day, those are just pieces of cloth with colored fabric sewn into them. Right. But when we start to elevate either of those things to the point where they become part and parcel of our worship— um, or when we start to assign value, religious value to them, this person was saying, because you don't elevate the Christian flag higher than the American flag physically on a flagpole, right. then you somehow have created an idol out of the American flag. Well, you have now then just attached a religious significance to these flags that isn't there. So you've actually made the idol out of the Christian flag. <laughs> Inadvertently. <laughs> so we have the, the, the overarching sin in the Old Testament is idolatry. The Israelites are constantly, constantly chasing ever other gods. Uh, I, I look at it and I just, I can't even fathom it. But then I think about how often I chase other gods, whether it's success or money or right. um, acclaim, whatever it is, we create these idols. And a lot of times we create these physical representations. Maybe it's my resume and that's become an idol. And that now is a second commandment violation. So I think it's a great question. Um, at the end of the day, Two pieces of wood that are aligned in perpendicular angles to each other is not intrinsically a, a second commandment violation. If we make that a, 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 a symbol that has religious obligatory significance for us, um, then that is when it starts to cross the line. Right. Because I think we both agree the center and focus of Christianity is the cross of Jesus Christ. Right. So just like Paul in 1 Corinthians we want to know, or we should desire to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So I right. think a lot of churches bring that imagery in to make that central to what they're doing as a reminder and as a good symbol. But certainly it could get out of hand. And yeah. I've seen this, I think, sometimes subtly, not so much in visual representation, 
but in the lyrical representation. Yeah. So there's like a lot of popular songs right now speaking about the power of the cross. Well, there's nothing particularly powerful about the cross itself. Right. It's the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on that cross. And then we have to also marry that against or alongside the resurrection. Right. So, I mean, I think there is in our language sometimes we do get really tied up with the cross. Yeah. And I think it can become certainly a distraction. And your story at least points to that. And obviously, you're, we're all in good company there because the Israelites just jacked up a lot of stuff all the time about <laughs> yeah. how, they, how they understood worship and what they attached themselves to and how they attached certain powers to certain things. I just have rarely experienced practically probably anybody worshiping the cross, but I can see sometimes that in our language, we get very close, probably inadvertently, to yeah. ascribing some kind of power to it. But whether we're speaking about it in kind of this ephemeral way or whether we're talking about the representation that's in the front of the church, I, I don't see a lot of that directly. Yeah. But, but it's, it's helpful and healthy to ask that question. That's, I mean, Devin's on point there. That's a really, really great question. Yeah. Well, let's, let's move on to the next email. You ready for another one? Let's do it. All right. So this email is from Jim. And he wrote this amazing email that was very encouraging with some observations about his understanding of suffering and pain. He actually works as a pediatric nurse, and he's clearly seen some just just really dramatic, horrible things in yeah. the course of that, um, that line of work. And one of the things he noted was that when he reflects on pain and suffering in the world, he's often reminded of just how much God hates sin. And that prompted me as I was thinking back on our discussion that we talked about a lot of things, but in the time that we had, we didn't really say much about how does sin interface with how we understand pain and suffering. So I figured it'd be good for us to kind of just share some quick thoughts on how the Christian really handles those things, how they are different in understanding how sin impacts the actual existence of pain and suffering. You got any thoughts on that? Yeah. So it's, it's important for us to remember that not every instance of suffering is a direct cause of an instance of sin. So time and time again in the Gospels, um, we talked about a couple of the examples, but the the disciples come to this blind man and they say to Jesus, who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents? And Jesus says, neither this man was born blind so that my glory may be manifest. Now, what Jesus is not saying is that blindness, his blindness was not a result of the reality of sin. He was saying, this man's blindness is not directly caused by a specific sin. The same can be said of Job or any of the other examples that we have. Exactly. Suffering is a result of the presence of sin in the world and ultimately of the fall of Adam into what the Westminster um, Catechism calls the estate of sin and misery. And so we, we have to recognize that Um, I I think that Jim's insight here is really uh, on point is that when we, you know, when I'm, I'm sick right now, I can feel the, the, my throat wants me to cough and I've been fighting it for the last 15 minutes. And that should remind me that creation is not as it should be. Right. And, you know, I'll put a link into it if I can find a good, a good free link. Um, I think I can get it on YouTube, but, um, Johnny Erickson Tata, if you're not familiar with her, is just she's got this amazing story. She was injured in a diving accident when she was a young woman. Um, she uh, was made quadriplegic, and she's had this this life of intense suffering. And she recently started getting these chronic pain issues, which 
you know, if you have chronic pain, I have some, I don't know if I would even call it chronic pain, but I have some long, like long lasting back pain issues. And what you find is you learn different ways you can sort of like adjust your body that alleviates the pain even just a little bit. But if you can imagine having chronic pain and not being able to move your body to try to alleviate it. So she talks about how there are times where she'll be laying awake in bed at night and she doesn't want to wake up her husband for the fourth time that night to try to roll her in a situation that alleviates her pain. And she talked about how one time her husband and her were driving home from something and they got to talking about how sin in the light or how suffering in the life of a believer is like a cold splash of hell on our face. It's a way that God introduces the pain of hell to remind us of what we've been saved for. And they started talking about like, well, so what's the splash of heaven that God splashes in our face to remind us of what we are saved to. And they came to the conclusion that it's not what we might think. It's not the nice car. It's not the success at work. It's not the full bank account or the good meal. The splash of heaven is the fact that despite our sin and despite our suffering, Christ saves us through those things. Right. So I'll get the link. It was a phenomenal, amazing address. She did it at the most recent Ligonier National Conference. But I was walking through the grocery store listening to this, like, like t- crying in the middle of the grocery store. I actually had someone <laughs> stop and ask me if I was okay because I was, like, bawling in the grocery store. So um, I, I don't know that I can put it any better than that. But it, sin, suffering is the result of sin. But God, like all things that he's purposed for our good, for those who he's called, he uses sin and suffering sinlessly to draw us to himself. Yes. Yes. And that's, that's important for us to word. remember. That's a good word. And that's exactly what I was thinking too, is that the promise of our hope is not that this, from our perspective, is the best of all worlds, but it is the best world which God is using and yeah. desires to use for morally justifiable reasons to draw us onto himself. And it demonstrates in this glorious way, if we can at moments of clarity, look outside of ourselves, even sometimes see through immeasurable pain and understand that here is the one, our savior, who redeems all these things and somehow makes them better and bigger and more grand than we could ever even imagine. Yeah. And so that, that's an amazing thing. And the example I have is many years ago now, I have two good friends and they were having their second child. And they got that news that, of course, no parent wants to hear. And that is that the baby had severe deformities that they could unequivocally identify. And so there was no doubt that the child was not going to live long at all. This was not one of those situations where it was a possible misdiagnosis. There was a low probability through genetic testing, through sonogram. The child's brain was not developing. He only had one lung. Uh, There was no way that he was going to live. And so... I can't begin to understand that kind of pain. It's just impossible, honestly. Yeah. And so these parents did, as believers, what I think was incredibly brave, quite honestly. And that is, through every appointment that they kept, through every doctor that they interact with, they expressed that their desire was to honor Christ by loving this child for as long as he would give them, uh, he would give this child to them. If that meant only in utero, that's what they were going to do, is be incredibly faithful. And so when this little, the sweet little boy was, was born, uh, they held him for all 20 minutes of his life yeah. and they loved him desperately. And I came into this only walking beside them and not knowing, of course, anything to say. And this is just incredible suffering that is really hard to fathom. 
And it's one thing to give intellectual assent to suffering by way of looking online and seeing things that are happening, atrocities and disasters all across our globe. Yeah. And knowing people that we love suffering from disease or being taken away far too soon, in our opinion. That's one thing. But when I walked into that funeral, when you see a baby casket, yeah. there's a different sense that there's something not right. We, we all groan. We groan over our sickness. But we look at that and we say, Father, have mercy on us. Yeah. What, what is happening in this world? How grievous is our sin that this is what happens? And it was actually an amazing uh, service of which I had uh, a short time to, to speak at. And I'll never forget the thing that I said by way of their example was the small amount of redemption that I could even see. And I think this is just the tip of the iceberg that God has planned for this family and for the grand, you know, reunification of all of them together in the heavenly places. The small amount of redemption I saw was that just as Christ was given to us with unreserved love that God the Father gave him to creation and didn't snatch him up quickly when harm befell him, these parents chose through immeasurable suffering to yeah. love their child in a completely unreserved way. And this absolutely changed people. It changed their doctors. It changed yeah. how people understood them. It changed how people saw them because here were people in crazy pain, unimaginable, unmeasurable pain, that somehow they still had joy. And even yeah. as a Christian, who like knows as I read the scriptures that that should be my default position and that should be normative. I cannot understand it except when I look at these people. Yeah. And so there's something in that where even in this pain, like you said, that is this glorious splash of cool and refreshing water that God gives us so that we continue to groan. And yet at the same time we say, how great a savior you are. Yeah. That you can take these things, that you can do something with these things and make something that's immeasurably good from something that seems immeasurably bad. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing that I just got really heavy. That. It did. It did get really heavy. <laughs> well, let's finish up with one more question. This is also a voicemail from my man, Devin. So let's listen to this. All right. Hey, Tony. Hey, Jesse. It's Devin. Just got done listening to your episode on the problem of evil. Kudos, boys. Nice work. Um, yeah. Along your lines of first responder and and saying the training took over. Um, I always apply that or draw from uh, First Peter where he says, you know, prepare your minds for action. And then that can be synthesized along this way in the, in the problem of evil by saying you got to win the fight before you ever set foot in the battle. So you win the fight in your mind before you ever step into the battle. And you guys picked up on that in your episode. Nice work. And uh, anyway, y'all take care. God bless. So, Devin, appreciate it, brother. Thanks for the encouraging words. Uh, you know, it's just me and Tony talking it out. So that's why we love to have other people come into the conversation. And, Tony, I like that he gets in this whole preparing our minds for action. And since we just kind of tackle a little bit more of pain and suffering, I wanted to throw out on the heels of his commentary how do we kind of use that First Peter one thirteen, preparing our minds for action? How do we do that in the realm of pain and suffering? Yeah, I mean, on one level, you can never prepare yourself for suffering. Um, it, it it almost always catches you by surprise, and so I think um, one of the main things that you can do is to just memorize the scriptures, right? So. 
I, I don't know the family that you're talking about, um, but I can imagine that in times like that, sometimes all you can do is is recite God's promises until you believe them again. Yes. Right? So you, you in, in the valley of the shadow of death is the time that you have to be repeatedly preaching to yourself, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Right? The fact that you're in the shadow of the valley of death, the reason you can fear no evil is because of the promises in the beginning of that passage. Right so on. In, in terms of things you can do to prepare your mind for action, um, there. I mean, I'm sure there are probably practical things that you can do to get ready for those kinds of things. But in terms of spiritual preparation, Praising God in the good times, being thankful and aware of the fact that the good times um, are are probably not going to last for the rest of your life. You're going to have valleys that you approach, and having um, having the having your mind full of the scriptures. Um, I think it was Rod Rosenblatt, and I think it was on a White Horse Inn episode that that I heard this, but he talks about how um, one of the reasons he memorizes scripture is because if he gets in a terrible car accident and he's laying on the the road dying, he wants the place that his brain automatically goes to as it shuts down to be the scriptures. I love that. The only way that that can happen is if your brain is so trained to go to the scriptures first before anything else that you no longer have to tell it to do that. I love that. Um, he he talks about like memorizing hymns and stuff, and and uh, I'm not so sure that I want to go there. I don't I don't want a man made hymn to be the last thing in my brain as I'm dying. I want God's word to be. But the point the point stands is that we have to, um, you know, this came kind of out of the out of the talk about like first responders and, um, you know, letting your training take over is a major part of that is is reading the manual. I mean, the Bible's not just an instruction manual, but if we take that analogy, the first thing you have to do in those situations is you have to read the manual. And then from there you go into practice and that practice then reinforces the manual. So memorize the scripture, memorize, memorize, memorize as best as you can, memorize as much scripture as you can. And it really, in every area of your life, it pays dividends. But I, anytime that I'm, you know, my, the amount of suffering that I face is so minimal that it's almost insulting to people for me to bring it up. But anytime I face suffering, whether it's a sleepless night or some sort of persecution at work or an argument that really just gets at me or whatever, having the promises of God on in the front of my mind so then they can come out of my lips has always been central to me to reorienting myself and being able to be thankful in the midst of suffering has to rest on the promises of God. Right, because Christians are going to experience sorrow from evils, but it should be mitigated by faith so that we do not cease at the same time to rejoice. So sorrow does not prevent our joy, but I think on the contrary, it actually gives a place to it. It is that kind of confluence between the groaning and the rejoicing. Yeah, And we should just say that joy over doesn't over really overcome sorrow, like because that would divest us of humanity. So we are still going to suffer, but true patience in suffering is, I think, at its beginning and at its root, the knowledge of God's blessings, especially that gratuitous adoption with which he has favored us. But you need to know that, and you need to rest in that, and you need to get your your feet sunk deep into the mud of that truth. 
Yeah. Because all who set their minds on understanding and internalizing God's promises will find it an easy thing to calmly bear all evils. And I know that sounds like a crazy statement, but that is the truth that God presents to us in the scriptures. I mean, let me, I think it'd be helpful. Let me read the verse that he was referring to, which is 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. I mean, we could spend a whole episode talking about that. Yeah. My favorite part of this verse, maybe, I don't know if your mind is going here, just because there's some fun language here in the Greek, is the whole gird up the loins of your mind. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I, but the thing is, that's super important to this, right? First of all, it's a weird kind of mixed metaphor, but I love that the scriptures give us this kind of wonderful mixed metaphor. So obviously, that's drawn from this ancient custom that men typically had large, long garments. And if they were going to make a journey or conveniently do any kind of work, they had to obviously tie those up kind of around right. their waist. Right. So it's basically like, you know, get your clothes up around your crotch so that you can be free from obstacles to go forward toward God. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting that Peter enjoins this sobriety of mind. So he's commending not just like temperance only in eating and drinking, but this like spiritual sobriety. Yeah. So that all of our thoughts and affections are so kept so that they're not inebriated with the allurements of the world. That's like a really interesting concept. So I love this gird up the loins of your mind. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting how often throughout the Bible we are commanded to um, engage our minds, right? I think sometimes we, yeah, reformed Christians are probably not terribly um, susceptible to this because we tend to be kind of heady people anyways. We're pro minds. Yeah. But a lot of times, especially when we're talking about like suffering and things like that, people tend to think that like that's that the answer to that is in some sort of emotional stability. (coughs) But this is one of the memory verses that I've been working on. It's Isaiah 26, three. And it says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And so trust is, is definitely deeper and maybe more expansive than, than the life of the mind, but it isn't less than the life of the mind. Right. And so we see this repeatedly in scripture that the mind has to be engaged in the enterprise of faith. And I think suffering and being prepared for suffering, it's also there is that if you meditating on the word, memorizing the word, meditating on the word is an activity of your mind as much, if not more than it is an activity of your emotions. So I think just sort of ruminating in that and understanding that we have to be engaging the scriptures with our minds because you know, when, um, when I, I had a friend, um, I think he listens to the show. I'm not going to use his name because I don't have permission, but I had a friend a couple years ago whose wife was pregnant and she took a fall and, um, the placenta ruptured and the baby was born at like 26 weeks. Wow. And at first it actually looked like, like everything was going to make it. And then the baby just took a, a sudden turn. And I, I, I totally feel you when you say like looking at a baby casket is like the worst thing ever. Yeah. It'll mess you up. And in that moment, I don't care who you are. Your emotions are not going to be controlled. Right. There, There's probably something wrong with you, like psychologically wrong with you. If you are able to control and contain your emotions in that context. 
but your mind is a different animal. And so your mind and your emotions oftentimes serve to keep each other in check. And so in those moments of suffering, preparing your minds for the action of suffering and of persisting through suffering is vital because a lot of times you have to be able to to flip over to the mental as opposed to the emotive in those circumstances just to be able to survive. You have to be able to let your emotions do what they're going to do, but at the same time not lose control of your entire life. And that takes mental preparation. And engaging the scriptures with your mind is the place to go for that. And speaking of that, everybody should go and just read First Peter chapter 1 because where we find the context of that verse is basically not just to be prepared for all things, be prepared to give a speech, be prepared to give an account, but it's specifically Peter's addressing this really drastic need for holiness. And it's yeah. a call of separation in all things. And it strikes me that what we're saying is the Christian must be separated in how they understand and deal with and process pain and suffering. And that that is going to be a marked distinction in our world. Yeah. yeah. So what we're talking about here is a big deal. The holiness in pain and suffering is having your mind rooted in the right way in understanding God's promises and how he uses these things for you know, our good and his glory. And yeah. I think kind of in closing of, of John Bunyan, who was so big on this and always kept asking the question. And this is kind of like a, I think I may have said this last time we talked about it, but this is kind of like a bold thing to say, but he just keeps writing. Can it be that bad? Can it be that bad? Not like, is your suffering really that bad? Like compared to other people, but if this is somehow going to be for your good and draw you to your knees to the end of yourself so that you come to the great physician, to Christ himself, how bad can it be? Exactly. Yeah. And that is a really hard question to ask yourself when you're actually uncomfortable. Yeah. But it's probably something that's that's really valuable. So I think all these questions are are really, really great. And this kind of brings us all the way back around to talking about reading because it struck me with what you were saying, just again, how much I value when I look at the example of Jesus. Here was a dude, also son of God, but I'm just going to use dude for the sake of this conversation, who, because he's identifying with my humanity, that <laughs> with your was so, in his dudeness, was so focused and disciplined. And I love that about our Savior. You know, yeah. like I want to be a more driven, focused person. So when it comes time to us reading the Bible or doing some memori- memorization, we got to shut down the cell phones. We got to get away from our computers. We got to take it seriously that if we have time, and we want to give ourselves in the first fir- first fruits of our efforts to God himself. We need to start with being focused. And yeah. I'm just increasingly convicted. That may just be me, but I'm increasingly convicted. I'm a super distracted person. And the internet for me, like checking email, looking at Twitter, can be like crack. Like almost if I have a spare second, my fingers want to go to that icon to yeah. look at it. Just by default, I need to break that. Yeah. And get more rooted in the scripture. And I think that's a great way for me to say, I know this this tick is going to happen. And so therefore I'm going to change course direction there and go back into the scriptures. So Yeah. Yeah. That's what I have to say. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's been a great these have been great questions. Um, we're coming up past the end of our time. So um, you know, share this episode with someone else. And if if you walk away from this with any call to action from us, call and leave us voicemails because yeah, we leave love, us some voicemails. 
We love doing these. And um, our listeners come at things from angles that we obviously don't think about or they wouldn't have to ask the question. So if you have a question that you're thinking about as a response to something we've said, by definition, it means that it's something we haven't addressed. So don't ever feel like you're going to write us a question and we're going to be like, oh, we already talked about that. Because if, right. we, were, if we had talked about it, you wouldn't have to ask the question. So please send us emails, write us um you know, write us emails, uh, give us voicemails. We would love to be able to keep up this uh, monthly question cast um, and share share this episode with a friend because, you know, there's there's always more people that we want to be able to edify and reach. And the only way that that happens is if you tell people about it. Right on. And the number you can call. So pull your car over right now. Did you pull over? All right. Get I out did. something. To... <laughs> I pulled over. We are We are against distracted driving. Pro yes. resurrection against distracted driving. <laughs> so here's the vo- here's the number to leave a voicemail for us. 607-444-2767. Yes, bros. Put that in your contacts on your speed dial because we'd love to get more people actually speaking into the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, that should just about do it. Until next I believe time, it does. It does. Until next time, honor everyone. <laughs> Love the brotherhood. Uh, what if I'm fine?